Okay, tonight the goal is to kind of finish part of Mark 2.26, possibly. This is our number seven on this one verse. Not even the whole verse. It's one word, okay? So seven hours on a name, I guess, basically is what we have done. So, or this will be seven hours uh, when we're done with this. Uh, we'll, we'll have to probably circle back and probably it's going to take probably nine to ten hours to fix all the issues with this section of Scripture. Um, but it is funny. I did receive uh, a message uh, this, see what time? At 4.24 p.m., and someone said, It occurred to me this morning that the new church I'm attending is working through the Gospel of Mark. Looks like they preached the section with chapter 2, verse 26, the week before we started attending. I found the sermon online. And then it says, Odds on whether Abiathar versus Ahimelech is addressed. I haven't, I haven't listened to it this morning or this morning's episode yet. Now, they ask odds on, so I responded with, based on my recent experience, I would say the odds are zero. <laughs> However, you can definitely let us know. So it'll be interesting to know if the, his church addressed it because in our, my experiment, not one church, you know, out of the three hours plus of review, did a, a church even deal with it, address it, or even acknowledge that it was there? It's one thing to say, hey, there's a problem here, but we're not going to acknowledge, or we're not going to deal with it. It's another thing just to pretend it's not there, and then go so far out of the way that when they make a reference to 1 Samuel, they didn't even use Ahimelech's name. That, that's some, some deceptive stuff, but that's because churches want sermons. They don't want to actually deal with the text. So tonight, here's our goal. First, I'll remind you of the problem. Then what we have to do is recreate as fast as we can, so I'm going to need everyone's notes, the possible solution we had kind of walked into at the end of the second hour. All right? So make sure we have all of those verses because we want everyone online to have a quick, easy way to go. Here are the verses. You put them together. This is the possible solution. Okay? Has everybody got that? All right, so here we go. Let's remind ourselves of the problem. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I'm going to open up the... Here in case someone posts anything online. All right, Mark chapter 2. We'll start in verse 23. Here we go. And it came to pass that he, speaking of Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began as they went to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? And he said unto them, Have you never read what David did when he had need and was unhungered, he and they that were with him? Now, immediately we know he's referencing 1 Samuel 21, and we don't understand why he would use such a horrible, horrible, horrible story, but he does. Um, There's lots of questions here. We have questions in regard, did David actually break the law? And if he did, well, what does that mean? Because some could argue Jesus is using uh, situational ethics. What Jesus is saying, hey, if David could break the law, we could break the law. Right? Is that what he's saying? So there's all kinds of questions there, but we're not working on that. We're working on the next part. Verse 26. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, 
the high priest and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priest and gave also to them which were with him. Now, what is, I want everyone to eat, to summarize the problem to me as easily as like, if you had to explain to someone what the problem is, someone explained to me the problem in the easiest terms possible. Go. Abiathar is mentioned in Mark 2.26, but when you go to 1 Samuel 21, it's Ahimelech, it's not Abiathar. So what, what happened? Now, we may not think it's a big deal, but it's a pretty big deal. Because Bart Ehrman, when he was given the task to try to figure this out, came to the conclusion that the entire gospel of Mark is in error, the whole New Testament is untrustworthy, and he abandoned Christianity and became a very prominent Bible skeptic even as of today. And his 2005 book, Misquoting Jesus, he tells the story that that's what led him to abandon Christianity. Now Christians have the attitude, ah, it's no big deal. That's a big deal. And my frustration with it is, you know why it happened? Part of the reason it happened is because he never heard it addressed in any church he attended before he got there. And he should have already known the problem. Should have already known that. Churches set people up for failure. And that's, that's very frustrating. So, there's the problem. Now, what is the possible solution? First, we need to put together all of the verses that we came up with. Bobby came up with the first one. All right? Bobby came up with the first one, and it's in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Hang on, I'm going to... Go to the actual page where my notes are. Not that I ever look at my notes, but it's weird. I can go an hour without ever looking at a note. That's kind of, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. All right, here we go. So the first one is 1 Samuel 21, 22, 11. All right, 1 Samuel 22, 11. Let's look at it. We'll, we'll kind of recreate the possible solution. And let's make it known, nobody, we came up with the solution. We did not find this in any book. or haven't found it any, on any sermon, <laughs> okay? All right? 1 Samuel 22, 11. And we're not saying it's perfect, but it's what we're working with right now. 1 Samuel 22, 11. 1 Samuel 22, 11. Then the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests that were in Nob, and they came, all of them, to the king. Now, for some reason, when Bobby read this, his mind went, wait, if all of them of the house are priests, and Abiathar is a son of Ahimelech, then is Abiathar a priest? And if he's a priest, that would at least maybe get us going in the right direction. Now, I don't know if I would have saw that looking at that verse, but that was a good question. So then what did I say? What do we need to figure out? When did he become a priest? Right? Because it, what, this is very important because if we have something that says he becomes a priest after 1 Samuel 21, then we have somewhat of a problem, right? Why would that be a problem? Well, because there's no way to even refer to him as a priest at that time. So we started looking for, where does it show us that Abiathar became a priest? And what did we discover? We never find a, a something that says, this is when he became a priest. We don't have that information. 
But we do have, in what verse? 1 Samuel 23, 9. 1 Samuel 23, 9. We saw this. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. So we know in 1 Samuel 23, Abiathar is already a priest. Okay, so that means it's possible, maybe even probable, that in 1 Samuel 21, Abiathar was what? A priest. Now, does that fix all of our problems? It doesn't fix all of our problems. Go back to Mark chapter 2. Why does it not fix all of our problems? Because if you look at Mark 2, go back to Mark 2, we read this. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest. All right. That, that creates at least a, that, like, let's just be honest, that creates a problem. Everybody agree? Now, it, but it doesn't, but it at least we can say, okay, maybe he wasn't high priest. So then the issue wouldn't be, the issue may be there, the name, the issue is why is he calling Abiathar the high priest here in Mark? Now, of course, Matthew and Luke doesn't mention Abiathar, which re, 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 just removes all the problems, but we don't have a, a good solution. Now, let's do this just really quick. Every, uh, if, if anyone can, you can use the Blue Letter Bible app or whatever app you have. Let's look at Mark 2.26 in every English translation on the planet. Okay? And you can get to them easy, right, uh, Twyla? Right, grab me every English translation, and I want you just to scroll through them and see if every single one of them refers to him as high priest. NIV, uh, Stephen, yeah. calls him high priest, okay? We know the ESV this morning called him high priest. We're looking. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that doesn't help us any. All right. So in other words, there's no translation issue where you can say, well, it probably shouldn't be translated High priest. I wish that was the case. So this is what we can say dogmatically. Everybody ready? This is what we can say dogmatically. That we have no clear record of when Abiathar became priest. Agreed? So it is very possible and probable that he was at least a priest at the time of the incident in 1 Samuel 21. Can we all agree with that? Yes? Okay, so, so, he, he, so, that, so as much as we can say is that if the text read in the days of Abiathar, the priest, there wouldn't even be a controversy. It's just that one word, high, that creates all the problem. I don't know if we have a good solution right now. We will see. Now, so here's what we need to do, all right? We, we, and the reason we need, now I know it's going to seem out of order. You're going to like, why are you going back? We looked up in the dictionary the entry for whom? Abiathar. And we, and we just got to the entry in Ahimelech when then Bobby threw out that and then we, we just chased it. We just went and chased the rest. Okay. Do what? There's not much, but we will at least read it. 
You can grab your dictionary, uh, Sarah, that's different than ours. And so you can tell us if there's any additional information. But let's at least read the entry on Ahimelech just to see if there's any help at all. Yeah, there's not much at all, but that's okay. All right? It should only take us a couple of seconds, but I just don't want us to leave something uncovered, all right? Uh, Page 35, page 35 in the Bible Dictionary, or at least uh, the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary. This one's going to go really fast. Everybody ready? All right, Ahimelech. My brother is king, the name of two men in the Old Testament. Number one, a high priest at Nob who helped David when he fled from King Saul, 1 Samuel twenty-two eighteen. Number two, a Hittite who befriended David when he hid in the wilderness from King Saul, 1 Samuel 26, 6. That does not give us any information at all. That helps us. All right. What does, uh, un- is that Ungers? Okay. All right. She, uh, we'll let her skim it really quick. We'll let her skim it. And if she finds something of great significance, she'll let us know what it is. All right. Oh, they don't even, they don't even mention for... <laughs> Now, that's weird. I got, he's got a Bible with cross-references that don't even go back to 1 Samuel 21. That's, that's crazy. Okay. Oh, there's your problem. Okay. Yeah, that's the problem you found in... Uh, was it... Chronicles, and what was the other? And 2 Samuel. Okay, now, just keep that there, just, like, open. We're not going to have time to go to that problem. I'm not going to introduce that problem now, because that just adds to a a different problem. We're still trying to fix this. But there, there is definitely a problem. And I hate that. I hate that is the answer. Oh, they just messed up the names. Well, then that means there's a mistake. There's a mistake, okay? So, but we may not have a, a, a better answer, but okay. Well, who did? Ahimelech or Abiathar? Abiathar was a priest and then he becomes high priest, okay? But it becomes high priest after, yeah, uh, when David is king. When David is king, all right? So obviously he couldn't be high priest at the time of the incident. All right, so which we, we've, we, all, we all have to acknowledge that. Okay, just you, since he becomes high priest, he just constantly refers to him with the highest title. That's, that's, a, that's a good idea. Let, we'll, 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 we'll keep it to the side, but that's, that's a decent idea. That's at least a decent one. All right, here's what we're going to do. So let's go through, let's go through our possible solution. Our possible solution is that Abiathar was at, well, we can, these are the things we can dogmatically say. 
Abiathar was a priest, yes? Very likely he was priest at the time of the incident in 1 Samuel 21. He does become high priest. All right? So, can you refer to him as high priest just as a title, a, a honorary title, even when you're referencing a time when he wasn't high priest? Some may say that's acceptable. Some may say that it's not acceptable. But it's the least plausible and possible. Would everyone agree with that? Okay? Okay? I, I, well... We make it excusable. A skeptic would say, I would think if Jesus is God, he could know a little bit better. So they, they, like, if I was a skeptic, I would probably tear that apart. But at least we have something to kind of grab onto. Okay, now, forget everything we've done. All right? Forget everything we've done. Now, what we're going to do is going to pretend that you're in a seminary classroom that's going to try to fix this problem. Now, the way they're going to fix it is going to be radically different than what we've done. What we've tried to do is find the best, all of the biblical information so that we can come up with a possible biblical solution. All right? But we're willing to now hear what others will have to say. This may be a little, this is going to require a little bit of work, but I will break this down as much as possible and skip any information I don't think we need. All right? Here we go. First, they're going to offer an evaluation of the various aspects of the problem. I think we've already done that, but they're going to offer the different aspects of the problem. Are you ready? I love this. Despite the fact that there are almost as many opinions about this story as there are exegetes, In other words, as many people as there are out there trying to exegete it and explain it, there's that many opinions. That means the opinions are what? Numerous. That's frustrating. That's frustrating. And the reason that's frustrating is you would think you're really limited in your options. So let's do this. Let's list all possible options to this problem. All right? Everybody ready? All right. Here we go. What is uh, possible option number one? Or possible solution number one? Or possible answer? May not even be a solution. All right, let's go through all the possible. Number one, what could be a possible answer? All right. Jesus made a mistake. Jesus references Abiathar. It's not Abiathar, it's Ahimelech. He calls him a high priest. He's not, he's not, he wasn't a high priest at the time. Jesus made a mistake. Now, if that is true, then what's the logical ramifications of that? Jesus is, you can't trust the words of Jesus. Jesus is not uh, God, and therefore Christianity is fraudulent. Right? So Jesus made a mistake. All right? Second possible answer. Mark made a mistake. Therefore, we cannot trust the gospel of Mark. And if we can't trust the gospel of Mark, that destroys the doctrine of inspiration. Therefore, you cannot trust the New Testament. That second direction is where Mark, Bart Ehrman went and led him to renounce Christianity. All right? Those are two. What's the third possible answer? 
Third possible answer is, and this doesn't answer everything, and in fact, I will say this one is, the third one is very plausible. At the very least, he was a priest. At the very least, Mark says, in the days of Abiathar, he was alive. So, he was alive, it did occur in his days, and he was a priest. This just leaves us with the issue is, why does he refer to him as high priest? There's no translation. Well, we'll 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 consider some of that. Okay, we'll consider it because that's what the when we when we look at how seminaries handle it, that's kind of the direction they're going to go. All right. So, what's one more possible answer? That Jesus simply refers to Abiathar by his high, highest title of honor, because Mark does not say that David spoke to Abiathar. He doesn't say that Abiathar was the one that gave him the showbread. He just simply says that this occurred during the days of Abiathar. That's very important. Remember that sometimes it's what the text doesn't say that gives us the the fact that that's why I'm so glad Mark and Luke didn't say anything. Because if they would have added one more piece of information, everything would have blown up, right? But yeah, yeah, Matthew, what did I say, Mark? Okay, Matthew and Luke, okay. Okay. so just Mark doesn't give us a lot. Just it was in the days of Abiathar. That's it. Well, it was in the days of Abiathar. Now, and the only other thing, if he would have just left out the high priest concept, then I think we could be good. All right. So those are all the possible answers. There's two. Was just someone who helps David. As we uh, read. That's interesting. Since there's two Abiathars in the Old Testament, both of them helped David. Hey, the one that was high priest. Hey, in the days of Abiathar, you know, the one who was high priest. Now, now we've got to, we kind of have to flesh it out a little bit, but it's possible. So, Let's act. So let's go through all of our possible solutions. Jesus was wrong. Mark was wrong. Right? Or we just acknowledge that it was in the times of Abiathar and he was a priest. Four, Jesus was simply uh, referring to Abiathar by his highest title of, or highest honorable title. Or Jesus refers to him as high priest to distinguish him from the other Abiathar in the Old Testament. And it is interesting that both Abiathar's and, and the Old Testament both helped David. That is, that is very interesting there. That is interesting. When we, yeah, when we, read, when we read the entry for the Bible dictionary. Does, does everybody need to look up a, or no, a, oh wait, that wasn't Abiathar. No wait, that was Ahimelech. I'm sorry. There was two Ahimelechs. Two Ahimelechs. So let's go, go back to uh, Abiathar. Was there only one? One of two chief priests? Look at your entry in your other, in uh, Abiathar in, in your dictionary. Does it only list one person? Okay, I'm, I'm glad. 
Because I'm like, we just read it, everyone. And, and then I'm like, wait, no, we, not. we just read Ahimelech. Okay? I was like, why is everyone asking me, did we read that? But we just read it. Okay. Let's see. Does it name them as... as Okay, that was, a, that was a good idea. Okay, that was a great idea. Okay, Ahimelech, there's two people named Ahimelech and they both helped David. Okay, Abiathar, we may only have one. That would have been a great, that would have been, oh, that would have been a, such a, that would have been, oh, perfect. That would have been so perfect. That would have been so perfect, right? Okay, all right, so now, well, that doesn't work. So we can't, we can't put that one down. We've got to scratch that one off, all right? So anyone listening on the internet, that last solution doesn't work, okay? We wrote it down, now we're erasing it. That's why we use pencil here at this church, okay? Because we tend to be wrong, right? Very last, and Abiathar's right up, very last paragraph says, some scholars believe Abiathar may have written portions of this. You're right. Yeah, yeah. We, Well, he may have, but still, referring to them as high priest, it would have made sense if there was another person named Abiathar who wasn't a priest or, was, or, or wasn't a high priest. Then it would have made sense. But it was a good idea, Sarah. Good idea. Just it didn't work. But no, I like, I like the attempt. Okay, so we got some possible solutions, right? What's our possible solutions again? Number one, Jesus is wrong. Number two, Mark was wrong. Number three, we do we can say dogmatically it was during the times of Abiathar and he was a priest. Doesn't fix the high priest comment, but at least we know that much. Or Jesus was simply using the highest title that he could, the honor, most honorable title to reference him. Okay, that, I, that's not perfect. None of those are perfect, but at least they give us something. All right, now. How is this, let's again, pretend we're back in seminary or you're in, in seminary for the first time. Here we go. According to the seminary, they want us to know this, that there's about as many opinions on this as there are those trying to exegete the passage. That's not very comforting, is it? And again, we should be somewhat frustrated by that because what should we say? There's only like four options. How can you keep coming up with more opinions? Like, like you can't just make up an opinion. It was, it was George Washington who did it. I mean, like, you can't just, I mean, what are you doing? There's, there's got to be a limit in the number of possible solutions, but okay. All right, here we go. A review of the literature reveals that interpreters tend to group the problems associated with this passage into three categories. Don't worry about the categories, but they, they say there's three categories. That means lots of options, but they categorize them into these three possible groupings. Right? I'm not really worried about you knowing the groupings. I just want you to hear some of the possible answers. All right. So they say we were going to examine the possibility. Now, th- this is what they're going to examine. They're going to examine the possibility that the problem occurred in the transmission of the content of the saying. Yeah. So somehow in the transmission of this information, sometimes a mistake occurred. Now, I hate this solution because this raises serious problems. Okay, all right. All right, that, that raises serious, right? 
evaluating evidence and arguments for this position. So, that, so they're going to look at the idea that possibly there was a problem occurred in the transmission of the content. So they're going to evaluate the evidence and arguments for this position. Somewhere, something in the transmission. Well, they're just saying the transmission. It could be in the writing it out or Jesus speaking it or someone hearing it. I don't know. We'll have to see what they're going to do with it. All right. Well, we'll let them explain what they mean by it. But they're just going with the transmission. Something happened in the transmission. Number two, we will turn to the possibility that the issue is related to how the phrase should be translated from the original language. Noting various perspectives on how this could have happened. They're saying maybe something happened and the translation of this into a different language created the problem. So transmission, translation. Right? Third, we will consider the idea that there is a problem in the source text being referenced by Mark and how this could have influenced the narration of the episode. So, transmission, translation, Source text. They're going to say those are the three possible problems. They're not even really really dealing with a solution here. They're just saying here are the possible problems. Right? So what are the possible problems? Transmission, translation, source text. Okay? Now, let's just stop right here because I like to be practical. Right? Remember, throughout all of this, I always throwing out practical concepts, practical ideas, right? Because that's, that's how you have to help people get through this. But you can see immediately we start going into this, you know that the average person sitting in the pew will be like, oh, what, what? But you can't do that. Because th- this can't be just something that you learn in seminary. Every person who owns a Bible should have figured out there was a problem in Mark 2. And it's our job to try to figure out what it is, all right? Now, We may work through all of this, and you know what we may conclude? None of that is helpful. But at least we've examined it, right? So here we go. Right, everybody got that? So we're going to go to the first one. The first one was a problem of what? Transmission. We're going to let them explain what this one is, right? Now, if you don't understand it, let me know. None of us may understand it by the time we're done. But okay, we're going to try. All right? If I have to skip some things, I will skip some things. I'm just going to try to give... What I'm going to try to do is gain the main idea. Is that helpful? All right. Now, they say trying to conceptualize the issue as a problem of textual transmission is the most common position among modern interpreters. So the most common view among modern interpreters is that somehow this is a problem with transmission. This seems to be the way the modern ones are going. Okay? And this was an article that was published just recently, like in the last couple of weeks. Right? That's how this entire podcast episode started, okay? Is I, I, get, I, I subscribe to all kinds of theological journals, and I get, I get the notification that the new, uh, the new uh, you know, issue is out, and I start looking at it, I'm like, oh, this is going to the Mark 2.26 problem. I'm like, I'll do, a, I'll do a simple broadcast about it. And here we are, hour number seven, and uh, it, it hasn't become simple. All right. Now, that, now, this is what they say. So this has become the common position among modern interpreters. That is, while some express it in stronger language than others, the contention is that this is an error on the part 
of Mark or on the part of Mark's source or on the part of a scribe who copied the text or on the part of Jesus himself. There's a lot of possible fingers to be hit. A lot of suspects. Bring in the suspects. All right, so let's go through all the suspects, all right? So, that, that there is an error on the part of who? First, Mark. Second, Mark's source. That Mark was pulling for, I, well, I, we don't know which source they're going to, uh, they're going to assign here. We'll have to see what source they're going to assign. Okay, we would, we would immediately say his source is what? For Samuel. So are they saying that it's first, or do they think Mark was borrowing from some other source that we're not aware of? So I don't want to speak for them yet, okay? All right, the third possible source of the error, all right, the scribe who copied the text. Whoever copied the text made the mistake, all right? Or Jesus himself, all right? Those, those are a couple of problems, now, let's go through that. If, you point, if any of them are the, at fault, if any of them, if we, can, if we can prove that one of these individuals are at fault, what are the ramifications of this? It, it begins to call into question the trustworthiness of Scripture. It, it just does. Or it calls into question the deity of Christ which we've already identified these as being the possible uh, answers, right? Okay, so let's see what they have to say here. Everybody ready? Most frequently, according to the literature, this entire situation is explained as a memory lapse by Mark, who simply inherited an oral tradition that he inaccurately reproduced. So Mark has a memory lapse based off an oral tradition that he received and he inaccurately reproduced that oral tradition. That means Mark heard the story, reproduced the story, but in the reproduction of the story, he forgot the name. Or got the name wrong. All right. Oh, thank you. Absolutely, it calls into the question of inspiration. Now, this is so important. All right? You've got this. You have to hear this. Now, I know we're going back to the days of when Bart Ehrman was far more influential than he is today. But when I took the teenagers to Dallas Theological Seminary, so they could hear a debate between Dr. Wallace and Bart Ehrman. I told everyone, Dr. Wallace is going to lose, Bart Ehrman is going to win. And there were, some people, so there, was, there were people in the church who did not like that I said that and were very upset with me. And when the debate was over, I'm like, I told you Bart Ehrman was going to win. Because here's what Christians just get so weird about. When we decide to debate some critic or some skeptic or some atheist, and we're like, I'm going to debate you, and I'm going to prove to you that the Bible is the infallible, inspired word of God with no error. Well, that preaches good, right? Until the atheist or agnostic just pulls out something like, 
wait, that's the wrong name. Wait, that, na that name was confused with that name. Wait, there's a, wait, we don't even know if the story of the woman caught in adultery even belongs in the Bible. Wait, there are more textual variants than there are verses. Well, all they have to do is just point out how many. And who wins the debate? So here's what we always have to understand. We can look at all of the manuscripts. We can look at all the evidence. And how far can it get us as far from just a purely evidential perspective? It can only get us to a point that we believe it is somewhat trustworthy. It is somewhat reliable. We can never get to, we can prove that it's without error, that it's perfect, and that it's, we can't get there. So what, what, where, how do we get all the rest of the way? It's faith. It's by faith that I believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, and errant word without error. Now, typically we say it's inspired, infallible, and inerrant in the original manuscripts. But we argue that the copies are trustworthy. But we have to acknowledge there may be some issues with the copies. You can't, I want to make it clear, you cannot prove that the Bible is without error. You can prove that it is highly trustworthy. But there are cases and issues that are problematic. What we have to say is we believe, based off the evidence and facts, to this level, but then the rest of it, we have to accept it by faith. There's just, we don't have the definitive... Look, if it was that easy to prove it, everybody would believe it, Right? No, there's a faith element here. Do I wish there was all, that the faith element was completely gone and it was just easily... I wish it could just be easily proven. But it's been demonstrated time and time again when you hear these debates. And it blows my mind as Christians walk away going, well, we won that debate. And I'm like, what were you listening to? Any reasonable understanding of debate rules, we lost. Because we wanted to debate a claim that we cannot prove. Does that make sense? So here, immediately, even those who are exegeting the text says, oh wait, we have a possible problem with transmission. So this was either an error by whom? Mark. This was an error by whom? Jesus. This was an error of the scribe. Or this was Mark having a lapse of memory due to the oral tradition which he received, and when he recounted the tradition, he messed it up. Which goes back to Mark being the problem. But, but all of those, if, if any skeptic points this out, what happens in a debate where you're trying to prove the Bible is perfect? You're going to lose. You've got to leave it in the hands of faith. No. And, and well, the point is, when you debate, you have to know that topic you're debating, right? You got to know, like, what, what's the, what's, what do I have to prove? If you can't prove it, don't debate it because you're going to lose, okay? It's, it, man, it's like, oh, okay. And that's just, 
That's just basic debating. Sometimes the debates Christians have. It's so weird. Christians will listen to a debate, and it's like they don't even hear the other side. They just hear their side. And I'm like, it's not a football game. Okay? We don't have a, you know the side you were on when you listen to a debate? Truth. And I don't care which side wins. I have, I'm not invested in a side. I'm invested in give me your best, give me the best evidence. And then, well, that's, and guess what? Winning a debate does not necessarily mean disproving Christianity. You know, sometimes a debate is won not because someone has a best argument. They're a better debater. Right? That, that's, how, that's how that works. Okay. Oh, man, we're not going to finish this tonight. I so wanted to. All right. Now, they said if one evaluates each of these possibilities individually, the idea that Mark's source would have erred in communicating in in, an accuracy is unlikely given the fact that such accounts of Jesus' words and actions were circulated orally and repeated for decades before Mark's writing. So they're like, if we go with the idea that somehow the oral tradition was wrong, that doesn't really work because the oral tradition was the way these stories were told. Way before Mark ever put, wrote down, or the author of Mark ever wrote down Mark, or the words. Does that make sense? So they say you can't really call into question the oral tradition. That's the way the stories were told. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove anything, but that's them, that this article is kind of discounting that there was a problem in the oral tradition. Does that make sense? Right, so this is what they say. And, and if, a mis- if a mistake or an error was made, it would not have persisted long. So, they say, so they're saying if the, if the oral tradition had a mistake, someone would have caught it and someone would have corrected it really quick. And since no one did, it doesn't appear to be the oral tradition. So it has to be one of these other possible problems. All right? They don't prove that, but it is true. I mean, l- l- do this. Grab a Bible dictionary. Look up the entry for the Gospel of Mark. Look up the entry for the Gospel of Mark. Okay? I just want you to look at it. Give me the dating for the Gospel. Okay? 68 AD. Okay, let's see if there's other agreements. Sixty to one thirty, all the way as late as one hundred and thirty A.D. Yeah, that's that's a big time range. But that's a tradition, okay. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Good catch. All right. All right, that's fine. Okay, just to give us a date. I found it It looks like it's going to be somewhere in the 60s. If Mark composed this gospel while in the services of Peter, and Peter died in Rome between 64 and 68, then the gospel would have been written in Italy in the early 60s. Okay. All right, somewhere in the 60s. All right, thanks for catching the 130 uh, issue there. Okay. Because right. 130 would have raised lots of questions, okay? All right, 
So, we're in the 60s. Everybody got that? Now, let's just, let's just be honest with ourselves. Jesus, if we go with Jesus dying and being crucified around 33 AD, that's 43, 53, 63, 30 plus years later, Mark is written. In the meantime, so for 30 years, how did a lot of these stories get told? Oral tradition, oral tradition. And so that was a common way. So what they're saying, if there was a mistake that crept into the oral tradition, someone would have found it and corrected it. Right. So, but there, so that's, that's at least a reasonable, I think that's reasonable. Right? So we have the, so that kind of goes with the idea that the oral tradition was somehow messed up. All right? Now, an earlier copyist corrupted the text is not, see, the, that an early copyist corrupted the text is not impossible, but the manuscript evidence is inconclusive on this point. Now, when you say an earliest copyist, okay, let's, let's make sure we understand how this works. All right, so everyone knows how this works when it comes to the Bible. The original was written, right? The original was written. When it comes to inspiration, inspiration is only applied to what? The original. It's not applied to the copy. The copy is only inspired as it is faithful to the original. But the original, that's the inspired, God-breathed copy. Now, we all know, what do we not have today? We do not have the originals. So we have manuscripts. What can happen when people are copying things? Textual, we'll call them textual variants or errors. Some variants are insignificant, right? Spelling, word order, it doesn't really impact the meaning of the text. We, we can figure out what it means. Some, error, some textual variants can be greatly significant. Exactly. Now, what happens, the more copies, the more copies, on one hand, that's good. Because the more copies, we can say, well, we've got 50 copies here. We got a pretty good idea what's said here. But with 50 copies, what happens? There's possibly a hundred variants. Okay. Well, true. But so I'm, but I'm, going, I'm just making sure we understand the process, all right? So then when, you, when we have all of these variants, here's what we do. We look at all the manuscripts, right? We look at all the manuscripts, and the translators have to go, well, we've got 50, 49 of them doesn't have the problem. Only one. So you typically, what are you going to go with? The 49 and eliminate it. So they are claiming that when you look at all the manuscripts, we, it's inconclusive if an error or someone made a mistake or corrupted it in some way, shape, or form. They're saying that if we look at all the manuscripts, it's really inconclusive. In other words, you can't say, whoa, that's, there's a problem there. I don't like the fact they're saying it's in... To me, it either shows one or it doesn't, but they say it's inconclusive. That's not super helpful, but I just want to make sure everybody understands that process, how it worked, right? Okay. 
because, if, because a lot of people don't understand how it works. Some people think it just floated down from heaven. Boom. Leather bound with a table of contents. Okay, right? Okay, do I? Okay, right, and maps, right. And it did, I wish it worked that way. But I mean, when you remember when you're an early Christian, you may have kind of thought like, oh, just, like, the, they just sat down and wrote the whole Bible. But no, there was all these manuscripts. And, okay. and even the formation of the canon, that can drive you absolutely crazy, trying to figure out the formation of the canon. They're like, why, why, why did they leave that book out and include this book? Like, what's going on here, right? So, but that's, we won't get into all of that. So, so let's read this again. That an early copyist corrupted the text is not impossible, but the manuscript evidence is inconclusive. It is more commonly argued that since both Matthew and Luke almost certainly used Mark as a source. That's interesting. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, used Mark as a source. Let's just see how common that theory is. Grab the Bible dictionary, look up uh, for the Gospel of Matthew and see if they reference that Mark was a source for Matthew. Let's just see if there's agreement on this. Okay. Well, if it's dated before Luke, then it could be a source. Okay. So let's see. uh, uh, Just go ahead and look up Matthew and just tell me what you... If they say that Mark was a possible source. Well, we're going to have to, man, I thought we were going to finish this. We're going to have to finish it Wednesday, hopefully. It's going to take forever. It's going to take forever. That's why pastors don't do this stuff, but that's okay. You're going to have to just skim. Just going to have to skim. If you got, yeah, you have an introduction in your study Bible, you can look at that as well. I'm going to look at the ultimate guide to the Bible since I just see it back here on this table. Does it say anything? Okay, you don't find anything that saying he used Mark. I find that Matthew is certainly earlier than Luke. Um, if Matthew wrote an Aramaic original, he did so around 40 to 45. Okay. So it's like the Greek Matthew around the middle of the first. Okay. Oh, she's using a different dictionary. Okay, before you read yours, I'm going to use the ultimate guide of the Bible. Everybody ready? Because most scholars believe Matthew used Mark's gospel as a source... All right, so here's one, one book that says it. Okay, what are, you, what are you quoting from? Thomas Nelson's Study Bible, and it says Matthew used Mark as a source. Okay, Matthew and Luke, all right. And what do you have? Do you have a statement that says it? Okay. Okay. Do I? Right. Okay. That's fine. We I, we got a, we got at least a, a, a basic idea that this is a common a, a belief. 
Now, why is that significant? There we go. Now, if Mark is the source, why does Matthew and Luke come along, and when they possibly borrow from it, they're like, leave off the uh, uh, Abiathar. Leave him out of it. They They don't mention him. Now, let's see what they offer as a possible reason. All right? So, it is more commonly argued that since both Matthew and Luke almost certainly use Mark as a source and do not have in the time of Abiathar, right, and their accounts, it is plausible that they were aware that this phrase was original and decided to omit it rather than, they, than that they knew an early copy of Mark did not have this phrase, thus meaning that a scribe would have added it after the late first century. So let me read that again, because right? that may sound a little bit confusing. All right, here we go. It is commonly argued that since both Matthew and Luke certainly used Mark as a source and do not have the phrase, it is plausible, please note the word plausible, not that it's a fact, but it's plausible that they were aware that this phrase was original and decided to omit it rather than that they knew an early copy of Mark that did not have this phrase, thus meaning a scribe would have added it at a later date. So they're like, hey, they... They, they would have understood, it wouldn't have been there, so they didn't have it, and so someone later, some scribe, added it to Mark later on. So it shows up in the text at a later time, because Matthew and Luke would have probably been familiar with the original source. Okay? That, now that still doesn't help us, because that would mean Mark has what? Well, the copy has a textual error. All right, does that make sense? Recently, others has mounted perhaps the most detailed argument for this idea that the phrase was unoriginal and represents scribal corruption. Well, this has been shown the early, well, it has been shown that early church fathers were aware of the problem in their early copies of Mark's gospel. It seems that some of the early church fathers were aware that, hey, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. Um, some point out that others, uh, and they, they name a number of other church fathers, appears to have not known. So some church fathers seem to be aware of the problem, while other church fathers aren't aware of the problem. So I, I don't know what we deduce from that. Okay, Some knew, some didn't know. But let's be fair. Just because they didn't write about it didn't mean they didn't know. Because as we reviewed sermons, I would assume these pastors have to know there's a problem, but they don't bother to address it. Not addressing it doesn't mean they don't know there's a problem. I think that's, I think that's a jump in logic there. Does that make sense? He adds as well that when manuscripts or translations do appear without the phrase, even though they are fewer, they, they are still hi- historically early and geographically widespread, which leads him to conclude the phrase was a misguided mistake. They're like, you go to some of the earlier manuscripts, there may be fewer of them, but these seem to be the manuscripts that were spread wide and far, and it doesn't have the phrase. But the later manuscripts do. So that's why they think 
there, something happened later on. Because Matthew doesn't have it, Luke doesn't have it, and who did they use for a source? Mark. Now, let, we, we're going to have to stop right here. But now I've got to ask you a, a, a very important question. If we conclude, now I think we've already come up with some other possible answers, but let's say we conclude that a copyist made a mistake. Let's say we can conclude that. Number one, does that destroy inspiration? All right, I hear one no. Why would you say it doesn't destroy inspiration? Right. Why, and I'm asking you, why does that not destroy? Well, we have to go with the fact that the originals are the inspired. The copies are not inspired. So therefore, the cop- a mistake in a copy doesn't destroy inspiration. It destroys copying, okay, right? And we, we are aware that there's some possible issues in the copying because we know there's textual variants. Now, what, what can we conclude, though? Because of all of the manuscripts, right, then we can come along and Bible scholars can come on and go, but wait a minute, here's the possibility. Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke, don't quote it. They used him as a source, so it probably wasn't in the original. So it, and we have some earlier manuscripts, even though they're few in number, that doesn't have the phrase. So there's a very good probability that how should we read Mark 2.26? Without Abiathar being mentioned, just like in Matthew and Luke. That Matthew and Luke captures it. So that the number of manuscripts, even though it leads to this problem, in some ways it gives us some kind of confidence that we can say, okay, there there was a mistake. It doesn't destroy inspiration because the original didn't have it. The copy does. And, And please note, all of the manuscripts lets us know when there's a problem. Christianity is not designed to cover up the problem. Christianity's manuscripts, all the manuscripts helps do what? Identify the problem. Where in, say, Islam and others, other manuscripts are burned so that you only have, like, here's, we've got one. We don't just have one. In some ways, that's troubling, but it gives me confidence that nobody's trying to cover anything up. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to have to stop there. Now, any questions? Because we're out of time. I'm going to check and make sure no one has said anything. No one has said anything because everybody's probably like, what in the world am I listening to? Okay, but that's all right. You're listening to a typical Sunday evening service at Victory Baptist Church. Okay, all right. So, what can we say? That this, this is another possible solution Right? So let's go through our possible solutions. Mark was just wrong. So the original was messed up. Luke, or, or, or Jesus was wrong, which we create all kinds of problems. Or, well, we do know that it was in the times of Abiathar because he was a priest. Just the problem is the phrase high priest, but we can know that. Or that Jesus was just referencing him by his uh, honorary title, right? or his highest title. That doesn't help everything, but that gives us some idea. Or that this problem was not in the original. 
Matthew and, Mark does, Matthew and Luke does not have it because they're using Mark as a source. So the problem was introduced in the copies sometime after, I think they say, the first century. I think that was the dating I'd have to look. Later on, later on. Those, those are our possible solutions. All right. We've got a long ways to go. We'll stop for now. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. This is very difficult, very difficult stuff. But I think in engaging in this is our attempt to try to show that we care about your word and we want to know what it says and we want to rev- show reverence and honor to your word by caring enough to figure out what it does say. I pray that we continue to maintain that attitude. Forgive us when we don't have that attitude and help us continue to work until we can figure out a possible answer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.